Today on Question Period, Green Budget. This is our boldest and most specific step yet. With $9 billion promised on new green programs, can the government's new plan really hit their emission targets? Will an increasing federal carbon price cost Canadian families? The Environment and Climate Change Minister Stephen Guilbeault joins us in moments. And then, papal apology. I ask for God's forgiveness, and I want to say to you with all my heart, I am very sorry. Will the Pope's long overdue apology for the Catholic Church's role in residential institutions lead to real compensation and justice? What do Indigenous leaders want to see now? We'll speak to the Métis National Council President, Cassie Caron, who met with the Pope in Rome, and the Anishinaabe journalist, Tanya Talaga. She was also in Rome with the delegation. Plus, budget blowout. Our government was re-elected on a commitment to grow our economy. With pressing needs for defense, housing and health care, does the Liberals' new deal with the NDP mean the upcoming budget will be all spend and no thrift? Will it tackle inflation? Former Bank of Canada Governor Stephen Polos joins us, and so does the Parliamentary Budget Officer Yves Giroux. He's on the scrum with his warning signs. All that plus, why are the Liberals buying the same fighter jet they once campaigned on killing? The minister in charge of that file joins us. I'm Evan Solomon. Let's go get some answers. So on Thursday, when the finance minister will deliver her budget, there'll be lots of pricey programs on the list. Money for defense. The war in Ukraine has made that a priority. Money for dental care. The deal with the NDP has made that a priority. Housing money. The prime minister says that is a priority. And then, of course, the environment. This week, the federal government unveiled its long-awaited emissions reduction plan. That aims to reduce emissions between 40 to 45 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. Now, the plan projects that the oil and gas industry needs to cut their emissions by 42 percent from current levels if Canada is to reach that goal. It also includes $9 billion to expand existing climate action programs and a tougher mandate for 20 percent of passenger vehicles sold to be electric by 2026. What we've done with this plan is calibrate it so it is as ambitious as necessary, but also doable because uh, Canadians have had uh, far too long of targets that have been set, but not achieved. So is the plan realistic? And with the price of carbon going up to 50 bucks a ton on Friday, will the fight against emissions become an attack on Canadians' pocketbooks? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Environment and Climate Change Minister, Stephen Guilbeault. Minister, good to see you. Obviously, this is a very you big are. week with uh, the emissions plan last week and now the budget this week. And, and one of the key budget items is this $9 billion that you've uh, put out for things like housing retrofits and transportation. Will there be more money in the upcoming budget, as the Prime Minister seemed to hint, for new programs, uh, especially around housing retrofits? Um, as you know, I'm, I'm a humble environment and climate change minister. I'm, I'm not the finance minister. I don't know what's going to be in, in, in the budget. What I, I do know is that climate continues to be a, a priority. And, and one of the commitments we've made to, to all of our economical sectors is to help them make the transition. And we want them to partner with us. And, and, and they're putting money on the table. But we, we know we need to continue doing right. this. $9 billion may sound like a, like a big number, and it is. 
but it, but the transformation that we're talking about right. will will require more money to be invested. Okay, I know you say nine billion sounds like a big number, but your government's about to put nineteen billion dollars to buy uh, eighty-eight fighter jets. There's over twenty. I think the number now for the Trans Mountain Pipeline is up to $22 billion. Environmentalists are going to say it's nothing and that they're going to look for more money in the budget. Have you asked for more money? Have you pressed the finance minister to say, look, the $9 billion until 2030, I need more for the transition? I mean, $9 billion is a, is a big number, but it's not everything we've put on the table. I mean, since 2015, we're, we're somewhere in the order of $110 billion for, for the transition in, in, in Canada. Um, I'm not pressing the finance minister, but it's, something, it's, it's certainly something we're talking about. And, and how, do we, how do we phase in this transformation over, over the coming years? But again, Evan, exactly what will be on, on Thursday's, in th Thursday's budget, I, I don't know. Okay. But, but it is fair to say we should look for details and we, we might look for new programs. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair, yes. Okay, more new details. Um, the oil and gas sector produced 26% of national, national uh, emissions since 2005. The emissions in that sector are up 20%. Your new plan projects oil and gas need to cut current emissions by 42%. How do you do that in eight years in a sector that's been increasing emissions since 20, 2005? Yeah. I think what the way we do it is we try and find the right balance of carrots and sticks. Um, in terms of, of sticks, we've put it, the carbon pricing certainly is, is helping to, 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 to launch the transition. And then companies are telling us this is a very effective tool to, to, to make that happen. Uh, we've put in place a couple of years ago, a new regulation on methane emission, very powerful greenhouse gas, 28 times more powerful than CO2. In a matter of years, three years, uh, we will have cut methane emissions in the oil and gas sector by 40 to 45 percent. And we're on track to, right. to meeting this. So cutting these emissions by half will make a huge difference. But, but you, you said sticks. I mean, the cap on emissions. There's no cap on production. And we could talk about that because by 2030, the production of oil is going to rise to 5.5 million barrels a day. That's up 1.4 million barrels a day from today. Uh, you're not going to put a cap on production, but you're going to put cap on emissions Exactly. Um, when is that cap? When are the details of that cap? Because people can't figure out how you cut emissions by 42% and increase per barrels a day by 1.4 mil, million barrels a day. Well, again, the cap, we're in the process of consulting provinces, territories, indigenous leadership, obviously companies and other stakeholders. My goal is to have this in place by the end of the year. But I guess... <laughs> Is there a trust gap here? We're the only G7 country that saw emissions go up between 2015 and 2019. Um, Canada's never hit, any other government hit, has never really hit one of their targets. We've had targets before. How can people trust that we'll actually meet these targets? Well, because our plan is starting to work. So when we came into power in 2015, emissions in 2030 were going to be 12% above um, the, the, the 2030, uh, as opposed to being 30% below. Uh, which was the commitment from the Harper government. But obviously, we weren't going to meet that commitment because there was no plan, there was no measures. In between 2016 and, and, and 20, 2019, so just over three years, we were able to start deploying measures enough to flatten that curve to 2030. That's, that represents 30 million tons, Evan. So that's, to give you an example, Quebec as a whole emits 80 million tons. So, but now we've flattened that curve, we need to start making it go down in, in the coming eight years. This is an ambitious plan by your own admission. It is. Inflation is at a 30-year high. Uh, filling up, people are feeling pain at the pump. 
in the recent report, and the main mechanism here, of course, is your price on carbon, which just went up uh, on Friday uh, to $50 a ton. The parliamentary budget officer, who's on the show later, said in 2030, the federal carbon plan will reach $170 a ton, and most households in provinces that follow the federal carbon pricing plan will see, quote, a net loss. That means their housing, mm -hmm. household carbon costs will exceed the rebate. So, uh, it, you know, you've been saying that everyone's going to benefit from the rebate. He's saying, no, by the end, it's actually going to hurt the economy. How do you sell a plan that's going to have economic pain for people? How do you tell people, oh, accept this, it's going to cost you? Uh, the reality is that today, 8 out of 10 households in which the federal pricing system applies are better off. They're getting more money back from our pricing system than not. Going, the parliamentary budget officer is right that the price is going to go up. But the, the PBO didn't look at um, all everything we're doing to on electric vehicles, for example. It's way cheaper to operate an electric vehicle than than, than internal combustion engine. The price of energy for, for, for electric vehicles, which is regulated, electricity in, in most provinces in right. In Canada is regulated, so the price can't go up and down like they do for oil. Uh, the parliamentary budget officer didn't look at everything we're doing to help people reduce their energy cost at home through through home energy. But, but also, but but he, his point is that there are still inflationary pressures, uh, as you know. There's lots of pressures on, on on fossil fuels right now, and and the price is going up. Have you considered, or would you consider delaying uh, at all? Is it possible to delay? Um, increasing the price, the, the carbon price, in order to give no. people a little, uh, a break? No, just a flat no? No. Um, we are going through difficult times, for sure. There was the pandemic, there's the war in Ukraine, inflation right now. But climate change isn't going anywhere. Uh, last year alone, um, the number of people dying from heat waves doubled in Canada. Last year alone, 700 people just in B.C., um, we saw with the, the floodings in BC uh, what will be likely the worst natural ca catastrophe in, in in the history of of Canada, and and this is costing Canadians billions of dollars, and and, and it's costing lives, and it and not to talk about the impacts on people's livelihood of being evacuated. In some communities, they've been evacuated last year four times. They were evacuated because of the heat. They were evacuated because of the forest fires. They were evacuated because of floodings, and, and the parliamentary budget officer didn't take that into account in his analysis and I, I'm not blaming him for that but but that's his, but so, he so looked at one argument, specific but thing is your argument that if he had if he had calculated the benefits of green technology the true cost of climate change disasters that you still think that this is not actually costing Canadians more as he says than they're paying absolutely Oh, interesting. Okay, I got to leave it there. We'll look forward to seeing what's in the budget, environment, and climate change. Minister Stephen Gilbeau, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Evan. Okay, so that's the environment minister's version of this. Is his plan realistic? We put that to a special edition of The Scrum with our special guest, conservative environment critic Kyle Seaback. You can go online to see that at ctvnews.ca. When we come back, is sorry enough? The Pope finally apologizes for the Catholic Church's role in residential institutions, but will it lead to compensation? Métis National Council President Cassie Caron, who met with the Pope, joins us, and so does Anishinaabe journalist Tanya Talaga. She was also in Rome with the delegation. Stay right here with Question Period. A papal apology at last. After decades of waiting, after the thousands of pages of 
painful, heartbreaking testimony at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission about the role of the Catholic Church in the horrors of the residential school system. Finally, the Pope, Pope Francis, has met one of the calls to action to publicly apologize. It's chilling to think of determined efforts to instill a sense of inferiority, to rob people of their cultural identity, to sever their roots. I ask for God's forgiveness, and I want to say to you with all my heart, I am very sorry. The Pope also promised to come to Canada to apologize again, but an official date has yet to be set. But is sorry enough? This is not just a religious process of sin and absolution, of course. This is a legal process of crime, justice, and compensation. And after all, more than 150,000 indigenous children were forced to attend these institutions. More than 4,000 deaths have been documented. There probably is likely more. Thousands of cases of abuse, sexual abuse, even torture. I don't even call them schools because did your school have a cemetery attached? Mine didn't, neither did my kids. So what needs to happen now? Let's find out. Joining me now, Cassidy Caron. She is the president of the Métis National Council. She met with the Pope. She joins us from Rome. And so does Anishinaabe journalist, columnist for the Globe and Mail, and author of the brilliant book Seven Fallen Feathers, Tanya Talaga. She's also been in Rome throughout the week. Both of you, a pleasure to have you. Um, I'm going to start with you, Cassidy Caron. Um, you met with the Pope. Uh, you were there throughout the week. What did the Friday apology of the Pope mean to you? So this, uh, this just adds one more step to the process. Uh, and, and I like the way that you, you phrased that because there, reconciliation is a journey. It is a long process. And this apology is one more step forward through that process. And uh, it really opens a door for us to continue down the pathway of reconciliation. Uh, of course, the apology is just words. And, and actions speak louder than words. And so for us, this is extremely meaningful. For me as an individual, it's meaningful because of the elders and the survivors who I've sat with for many, many hours before this trip preparing to come here. Those who said that this apology is needed to be able to move forward in their personal healing journeys. And uh, it means so, so much to our people uh, it means different things to many different people, but of course we look forward to the Pope coming to Canada and, uh, and hopefully delivering uh, a similar, if not stronger, apology to our survivors, to their families on our territory. Tanya Talaga is a long time coming. Um, and and I, in, I don't want to undermine how important it was. What did you take away from it and, and what needs to happen now? You know, I echo um, Cassidy's words. This is just one step, one step. Um, there are many, many steps needed. You know, um, this now needs to be taken to Canada. Um, I am, applaud everyone for getting an apology and making sure that it actually did happen in Rome. I think that it was important that an apology took place, uh, you know, because we don't know when this will actually happen again. There is a commitment uh, by the pontiff to come to Canada, but, you know, we've, we've heard promises before, and I think that when we're um, in the room, we have to grab that apology, and we have to take those steps mm. forward, because as Cassie said, now it's time to put that apology into action. Cassie, let me go back to you because there were many things on the list. 
of course, the call to action, 58, was a public apology. But there's also calls for compensation. No word on that. There was also calls to turn over records. No action on that. There was also calls for um, trying to urge an, a, a French national priest who'd been accused of sexual, assault, uh, sexual uh, abuse to come to Canada to face charges. No action on that. Are you surprised by that? Um, I'm, I'm not surprised by that because there's a lot of work that has to be done in order for those actions to occur. I think today, like, uh, the, the apology was, was that first step. And between now and the Pope's visit to Canada, he's going to be able to sit with the amount of the, the asks, the, the requests, the demands that we have all brought to him this week. He can consider them. The apology that took place was was so much more than just I'm sorry. There were what I understand as, as really as marching orders for the, the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops, the bishops who are on the ground in Canada. They now have direction from the Pope to be able to move towards action. And uh, you spoke about, about the records. Um, so the, the meetings with Pope Francis weren't the only meetings that I came here to do. I came here and I met with cardinals in charge of different areas of the Catholic Church as well, um, including the Cardinal Secretary of State, including the Cardinal in charge of the bishops, and including the Superior General of the Mary Immaculate Oblites, who have a number of our records that we need to be able to continue to tell our stories. And so we did actually come out of these meetings with a lot of different outcomes, a lot of different follow-ups. So once we return back to Canada, that's when a lot of this work is actually going to begin. And I have a good feeling that a lot of action will come from the apology between now and when the Pope visits and then also following because we will be holding them accountable and we will continue to be doing this work. Tanya uh, Talaga, look, um Let's just go back to 2006, the residential school settlement agreement. The Catholic Church then was supposed to pay about $60 million legally agreed upon. They only ended up raising um, $3.7 million. Now they, they, the Catholic bishops in Canada want to raise $30 million. But is there, how important is that to get done soon? How important, for example, is the call to return all land given to run residential institutions back to First Nations? Of course. I mean, we have to we have to start from a good place. And starting from a good place would be to go back to 2006, would be go to back and to pay. The Catholic Church should pay the $25 million that it is owed. You mentioned that they've only paid, you know, $3.7 million so far. I mean, my goodness, imagine that. After 150,000 of our children attended these so-called schools from the mid-1800s to 1996, the majority of those schools were run by the Roman Catholic Church. You know, it is so incredibly important that restitution start happening, and the Catholic Church should be paying that and why are they going to raise money you know 30 million dollars I think they probably have it there you know um, open up the wallet and pay the money yeah. out I think that that would go a long way just a last quick question um, Cassidy the Vatican does do you believe the Vatican should appoint an independent investigator to come up with some kind of enforceable actions on the abuse that happened in the residential institutions 
Absolutely. That is one of the positions that we've put forward from the Métis National Council is that there should be an independent investigator to be able to help us really seek justice and, and implement justice for our people, for our survivors who are still with us today, and for our future generations to know that when something is, is wrong and, and you tell the truth, mm -hmm. that something will be done. That is very important to us in, in moving forward. And Tanya, last question to you. It, it was an emotional week in Rome for, for everybody, and a powerful one. Is, is there one thing that struck you that, that maybe people who were not in Rome, a moment that you carry with you, Tanya? Yes, and it's a, it's a moment that, um, thanks to Cassidy Carroll, has been brought forward to us. You know, it's not often that you see Métis, First Nation, and Inuit together pushing for the same thing, our leadership pushing for the same goals. And here we were in a foreign country, here we are in Rome, all together in front of the Roman Catholic Church that has caused so much pain for all of our peoples for 500 years. You know, the one thing that I think is so positive out of this experience is unity and the strength of what we can do together. That's Beautiful. It's been, it's, I think the echoes of this are just beginning to be felt. Uh, Cassidy, uh, Caron, Tanya Talaga, um, I really appreciate you sharing your, your, your experience and your views on this. Thank you so much. Miigwech. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, budget blowout. The federal government tables its massive budget this week with a deal on dental care with the NDP, pressing needs on defense and big promises on the environment. Is it time to rein in the spending or not? Can the government do anything to cool inflation? The former Bank of Canada governor, Stephen Polaz, joins us with his view next. Stay right here with Question Period. So the federal budget is just days away this Thursday, and it of course comes at a critical time. There is a war in Ukraine, the urgent fight against climate change, record inflation, Lots to factor in. How consequential could this budget be for Prime Minister Trudeau's government? Well, the finance minister is set to table it on Thursday. And the big ticket items to watch for, increased defense spending, a new dental care program promised under this new liberal NDP deal, and of course, the climate change initiatives. Now, the expected boost in spending comes as inflation continues to soar. It hit 5.7% in February, 30-year high. Is it time for the federal government to rein in spending, or can they afford to spend more? And can the government do anything to cool inflation? Let's find out. Joining me now is the former Bank of Canada governor and the author of the new book, The Next Age of Uncertainty, Stephen Polaz. Great to have you back uh, in studio. My first guest in almost two years. Nice to be here. Uh, there's enormous pressure on the finance minister now, uh, as I've just outlined. H how does Christian Freeland balance the pressure to avoid record spending deficits in a time of high inflation with dealing with these uh, spending pressures and priorities? Well, it's a very difficult uh, balancing act for sure. The good news is that the economy has delivered very strong revenues, both through strong economic growth and high inflation. Both of those things will reduce the debt line as a share of the economy uh, quite noticeably. And that means that the, the whole situation is more fiscally sustainable uh, than it would have appeared only a few months ago. So at least they have the ability to make 
choices. They're not under constraint in the sense that they have no choice. So, so we should expect a short-term pop, that, that the deficits won't be as big, the revenues will be up. Just so people know, inflation actually helps, hurts the consumer, yes. but it helps, helps the government because of price increases, they get more tax revenue, more wage revenue. So they actually are going to benefit mm -hmm. a bit secretly from, from a problem for consumers. Well, the fiscal guardrail, if you like, has been put as the ratio of debt to the economy, debt to GDP. And so that ratio will fall because of the strong inflation and strong economic growth uh, relative to the line that was laid out before. So that means that based on the previous guardrail, you'll feel like you have more room to maneuver to deal with some of these pressures, but at the same time make the kind of conscious choices you need to make for the longer term sustainability, responsibility, I would say, rather than just pure sustainability. But how does the finance minister balance a temporary pop, because we're supposed to hear that inflation is supposed to be temporary if you yeah. believe some forecasts, yeah. and yet permanent spending, permanent dental spending, yeah. permanent defense spending, permanent environment spending. Like when you got long-term programs, does that lead to structural deficits? Well, the, the temporary pop you're talking about is in growth rates. But that, what it means is that the level of nominal income, or everybody's income in the economy, is higher forever, not just temporarily. And so those ratios are improved permanently. Gives them more room to maneuver at this stage. But at this stage, I think what we need to be thinking about is what's the longer-term risk that they face? That we have, say, another episode like we just went through. Could we afford that? Those things need investments in resilience so that we have more of a buffer for the future. So it's that kind of choice which needs to be registered there, balancing those new initiatives, mm -hmm. which have a lot of merit, just as childcare had a lot of merit. Well, those things uh, matter to the economy and it can actually foster economic growth in the background. Okay. I mean, the concern with the Liberals is that every time they get a sunny forecast, they burn the raincoats and then you never, you know, you get soaked on the next storm. Are you concerned about that? Well, that's what I meant by resilience. Uh, I feel like uh, at the moment, uh, the notion of sustainability is kind of a minimalist uh, guardrail. Uh, it's what we can get away with as opposed to the responsible kind of balancing of risks for the future. Uh, I think uh, it is time for us to be considering, you know, building our buffers again like we had before we went in, into the pandemic. We had really excellent fiscal situation and it really paid off for us. So that's, that's the kind of risk management that has to be done within a budget. Can they do anything to lower inflation, not just the general inflation rate, but the housing inflation rate? Because housing is going to be a big issue. Well, uh, we don't, you know, certainly there's nothing you can do to reverse inflation today. It's mostly being driven by, by the commodity prices and those supply chain concerns. Those things will moderate over time. But the, the idea is not to add even more excess demand pressure to the system at a stage when it's at full capacity. We already have almost a million vacancies in the labor market. So we need to see that kind of cool off. And uh, that will happen, I think, gradually as immigration is picking up and people come in and fill those empty jobs. And at the same time as the growth rate in the economy slows. Okay, you're no longer the governor of the bank, so right. you can actually give some advice here. Yeah. If, you, if you could give advice to Christopher Freeland, given the, the economic uncertainty, which is what your book's all about, is a consequential moment for a budget. What yes. advice would you give her? Uh, take the opportunity, the gift that's been given here, to build some more buffers so that we're more prepared for the future. And yes, I understand these, the desire to improve the social aspects 
of the Canadian economy. Those are, those are laudable goals. But, uh, and I don't really know how much they'll cost, but they need to be at least financed in the, in the longer term. They can't just come out of thin air. Uh, defense. They're talking about 2% of our GDP to defense. That's another yeah. 20 to $25 billion, according to the parliamentary budget officer. Yes. Can the economy afford that? Well, I think if uh, democratically people believe we need a stronger defense posture, I think they should be prepared to pay for it. It's not something, again, that we can do out of thin air. Finally, uh, again, central banks and your former central banker are a key feature in, in Pierre Polyever's campaign, and he had a big rally, 1,000 people in Ottawa recently, and he, and he said, look, Canada should become the crypto capital of the world because Canadians need to be in charge of their own money supply, and he used the phrase, you know, through Bitcoin you could opt out of inflation. Hmm. How do you interpret what he means by opt out of inflation by using Bitcoin and controlling our own money? What's your response to that? Well, uh, no, uh, because Bitcoin is not a legitimate uh, transactor uh, vehicle. Uh, it's highly variable, so the price of things that you would buy would be varying all the time. That's, uh, of course, uh, digital currencies in a broader concept, they're, they're definitely coming, but they'll be probably official ones, you know, that, that the same kind of money that we use every day that's in our pocket. Uh, but opting out of inflation, I just don't understand that concept. Uh, when a price of oil doubles, how do you opt out of that? Okay, i got to leave it there. But big budget Thursday, your perspective always helpful. Uh, Stephen Polos, thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Evan. All right, coming up, ready for takeoff. After years of searching, Canada finally aims to buy the F-35 jets after all. How much will it cost? And were the years of debate and delays actually worth it? The Procurement Minister, Philomena Tassi, talks about that next. Stay right here with Question Period. Fighter jet reversal? Well, look, in an effort to replace the military's aging CF-18 fighters, this past week, the federal government announced it has launched negotiations to buy 88 of the F-35 fighter jets from Lockheed Martin for an estimated $19 billion. This comes after a liberal election promise from 2015 openly said, we will never buy that plane. It no longer makes sense, if it ever did, to have a stealth uh, first strike capacity fifth generation fighter. Now the Conservative government under Prime Minister Stephen Harper actually set out to buy 65 F-35s back in 2010. They were accused of underestimating the cost of construction and maintenance including by the Auditor General. But why did it take years to buy the same jet that Canada intended to buy in the first place? Does this speak to a larger problem with military procurement? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Procurement Minister Philomena Tassi. Minister, a pleasure to have you on the program. Look, uh, everyone's expecting defense spending to ramp up in the budget this coming Thursday, but this is a $19 billion procurement potentially. And in 2015, your party said, and Justin Trudeau said, I'll never buy the F-35 where I can get a cheaper, better uh, plane through an open competition, a more affordable alternative. Seven years later, we're back around the military mulberry bush. What happened? Well, let me begin, Evan, by saying in 2016, we did make a commitment that we would purchase 88 fighter jets, and that's exactly uh, what we have, what we are on the process of, in the process of doing. Um, you know, the procurement started in 2017, but let me be very clear. We knew that if we had a rigorous process that was open and that was fair, that at the end of the day, we would get 
um, a competitive process where we would get the, be the best plane for the best price with the greatest economic uh, benefit to Canadians. So the process here is extremely important. Let's be candid. This is still controversial, and, and you know that, that it's controversial on price. Um, the U.S. is so concerned about the escalating price, uh, and I'll give you an example. The Government Accountability Office in the United States concluded that the sustainment costs over the life cycle of the plane has gone up by more, by, from $1.1 to $1.3 trillion just in the last year. They have what they call affordability concern, uh, concerns. I'll, I'll just read you what they wrote. The service will be collectively confronted with tens of billions of dollars in sustainment costs that they project will be as unaffordable during the program. And, and, and you know that the chairman of the House Armed Services, uh, Adam Smith, was so concerned about cost overruns that he last year called this the Pentagon was throwing money down a particular rat hole. Why are you so confident this is right when in the U.S. they're calling this a financial rat hole? Well, it, this is exactly why the process is so important, and that is because we are looking at all those costs so that as the evaluations are taking place, that you are looking at the life cycle costs and what that is going to entail. And so in this, uh, the finalization stage, which we are moving to now with Lockheed Martin, um, that those those amounts are all going to be accounted for. I mean, it, it just adds to the argument that it is important that we go right. through these, this process so we don't repeat the mistakes that have been made in the past and not look at what exactly oh. it is going to cost okay. Canadians. Okay, so I know that you're negotiating the contract, but Canadians have been waiting seven years for details. $19 billion for 88 planes. What does that, is that the cost from cradle to grave? Is that the sustainment cost? Is that the per unit cost? How much does each jet cost, how much will it cost over its life cycle? And, and is that all included in the $19 billion or not? Okay, so the $19 billion is what was set aside in, in our policy, Strong, Secure and Engaged, which is our defense policy. That money was set aside for the acquisition and startup of these planes. Right. And so that's what that money is. You know, Evan, that I can't get into the details with respect to numbers because this isn't a done deal yet. We are in the midst of negotiations, and we expect that this is going to take probably seven months. Okay, uh, so there a is a chance. Anyway. There is a chance that the 19 billion, if if there is sustainment cost issues, cost overruns, which has been the feature, not the bug, of this process, that we, if there's 19 billion dollars, is there a possibility we don't get 88 planes? No. the The idea is that we are procuring the 88 fighter jets. And $19 billion has been set aside in Strong, Secure and Engaged as uh, the money that we would use to purchase these planes. And that would be acquisition and startup. So that includes training. It includes hangars. It includes project management. But as, the pro as we are going through this process, the life cycle cost is also being considered as we make the decision moving forward. So we have our eyes wide open as to what this, what the okay. total cost but, is. But do be. you know? Yeah. So is the is the per unit cost per plane? What is the per unit cost per plane within that 19 billion? What's the estimate right now? So, so as I've said to you before, Evan, we can't right. share those details. Like, I, we are in the midst of a negotiation. But isn't the negotiation, yes. as I understand the MOU originally that I read it, we get, Canada could get the plane at the exact same price as the U.S., isn't that right? Well, Canada has built the capability into the plane that it wants. And we have to ensure that when we are negotiating, that we are getting the capability that DND has asked for with respect right. to these fighters. 
So it va- so that's going to vary in terms of, you know, what exactly are the capabilities that we are looking for. Mm. And that, of course, will have an impact on the cost. One of the criticisms of the original Conservative plan to buy the F-35 was it did not have the typical requirement, and you know the procurement minister, you know, that the manufacturer spend the equivalent value of a contract in Canada on what's called industrial benefits. Lockheed Martin had made Canadian companies bid against other countries. There is no guaranteed equal industrial benefits. Has that changed and what guaranteed industrial benefits, Minister, will Canada get for this 19 billion plus? So a couple things there. First, in the procurement process on the industrial benefits piece, any bidder that provided a contractual guarantee on industrial benefits got the full points that they could get in that regard. Um, The second point I would make is in this procurement, we are using one of the highest percentages in industrial benefits that have been used in defense procurement. It's 20%. And the third thing, the third point is that in these negotiations, industrial benefits must be proven. It's one of the things that is a part of the negotiations. Right. Okay, but that is that we a change? Are being I just want to, because I remember in the original memorandum of understanding that was first negotiated, there was no guaranteed. When we paid into the consortium, it allowed Canada to be one of the participants that could bid on manufacturing, but there was no guarantee. This was a huge issue for your party criticizing the Conservatives. Are you saying that's changed now and there are guaranteed industrial benefits? At the end of the day, when this contract is signed, there will be guaranteed industrial benefits. Yes. There will be guaranteed. Uh, can you tell they, us? It's how, a part of it. It's okay, a part that's of it. a part. So that's yeah. a change in the contract. Yeah. Is there a minimum level, 20%, 30%? 20 was considered in the, in the um, evaluation stage. It was 60% on capability, 20% on cost, and 20% on industrial benefits. Okay, so, so, so you're talking about close to $4 billion, that, uh, 20% of the $19 billion is guaranteed industrial benefits? So, no, no, what I'm saying is that whatever the uh, agreement comes to, the weighting that was used in terms of the evaluation process, 20% was uh, uh, the weighted criteria for the industrial benefits. But that, that are supposedly guaranteed. Okay, I got to leave it there. Uh, really interesting. Always good to have the uh, procurement minister, Philomena Tassian, a big budget week coming up. Thank you. Thank you, Evan. When we come back, budget watch. What new spending commitments could we see in Finance Minister Christopher Freeland's budget this week? Does more need to be done just for economic growth? The parliamentary budget officer, Eve Giroux, is our special guest next on the Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. Thirty-year high inflation, the carbon price jumping to $50 a ton just late last week, $9 billion in new environment promises, $19 billion in new fighter jets, the pressing need to invest more in defense with the war in Ukraine, a remarkable deal with the NDP that forces the Liberals to spend on national dental care and pharmacare. All these factors will play into this week's federal budget. But remember, the Liberals have never met a budget target in seven years of governance. And they've blown through their debt-to-GDP ratio and their fiscal guardrail promises are gone. So, what should you expect when you're expecting a monumental new budget on Thursday? What are the big-ticket items and what are the big-ticket concerns? The Scrum is here to answer all that. Joyce Napier is the CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief. Marika Walsh is a political reporter with The Globe and Mail. And our special guest this round is the man who watches all this, the Parliamentary Budget Officer himself, 
Yves Giroux. Uh, okay, great to have everyone here. Yves Giroux, earlier this year you questioned the Liberals' case to spend tens of billions of dollars in planned stimulus, despite the government already reaching its own benchmarks of economic recovery from the pandemic. Now they've got new spending expectations with their deal with the NDP. What are you watching for? Well, we'll be looking at the numbers in new expenditures because we all know there are tremendous pressures on the government to spend. There's, for one thing, the platform on which they were elected, which to this date still includes about $49 billion on net new spending that has not been implemented. There's also the commitment to reach 2% of military spending that uh, NATO is really keen on now that there's a war in Ukraine, which in itself could add easily 20 to $25 billion in new spending per year on an ongoing basis. There's the pharmacare that you mentioned, there's dental care, and there are also demands from premiers for additional expenditures or transfers on health care. So all these pressures combined will probably uh, lead to difficult choices for the Minister of Finance. And what I'll be watching for is the pace at which these uh, measures are implemented and what that will do to the debt to GDP ratio over the next several years. Joyce, what are you watching for? The Prime Minister has already hinted that housing is another issue that we should be watching for. W what's on your radar screen? Well, obviously all that spending. What, what I'm going to be watching is the defense spending. Uh, because we know that there is a lot of pressure on Canada to reach that 2% of GDP uh, for defense. I want to see how either they do it or how they muddle it, because sometimes it's not what is in the budget, but what is not in there, uh, what I, and, and how to read between the lines. Um, look, there's a lot of uh, more spending uh, coming down, for sure, because as uh, Mr. Giroud just said, Look, look, you just have to go down that shopping list to know that these are more 10, 20, 30, 50 billion dollars more. And the government keeps growing bigger and bigger. Marika, what's on your budget radar screen? <laughs> well, I, I think just broadly adding adding to what the other two have have already said is there are all those questions about spending, these demands for spending. We know the Liberals in their election platform promised much more health care spending. It's not quite what the provinces want and how it's spent, but they, are, they have already promised that. So I think that's another big one that will be coming. And I think really the question is going to be, are we going to see this Liberal government making choices between spending demands, or are they just going to say, here you go, everybody? And I think that's changed a lot in the last few weeks. Early in March, we were hearing that it would be a bit more of a conservative budget, not a lot of new spending. Now with that Liberal NDP deal, it's changed. Yeah, and the war and other things. The other uh, item, Yves Giroux, a big ticket item is the environment. The environment minister says we can do it. Uh, we've got the carbon pricing. He claims that eight out of 10 Canadians will still get more money from the rebate on the carbon price. You've studied that. You actually say by 2030, most people will lose money on that. So what do you expect on the environment? And can you fact check the environment minister for us so people get a good sense of the, the real cost of, of, of the cost on carbon? Well, what the minister says is that 80% of households will receive more in rebates than what they actually pay in carbon tax, which is true if you look only at the 
carbon tax paid minus the rebate. But what we looked at was including the economic impacts of a carbon tax, which will act as a drag on the economy. What will be the situation that households are facing or will be facing as the carbon tax increases? And once you factor in these economic impacts that drags down growth, that ends up being the opposite, that 80% of households in provinces where the federal regime applies, they'll be worse off even when you factor in the rebate because of the slower economic growth that is the result of a carbon tax. It's not to say that the carbon tax is bad if your goal is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but you cannot say that it has no bad economic impact. Uh, Joyce, next to all this spending, it's basically inflation nation. Is there, is there pressure on Christian Freeland to deal with the fact that we've got 30-year high inflation? Cost of living, you mean. And that is a huge issue for not most Canadians, I think for all Canadians. So what can she do in this budget to address that? Uh, the high cost of living, and it's not going to get any better. Wages have not increased at the same rate of inflation. Uh, that's going to be the next battle. Um, you know, we've seen that already in some, you know, arm wrestling negotiations between labor and management. So we, we're, that, that will be in our horizon. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm expecting, you know, probably pessimistically very little in there to address that. Marika, last word to you. J just on the challenge, uh, I, the liberals just are not, you know, there's no, I don't know where the fiscal guardrails are. I'll be interested in looking at that. But there's just promises, health care, housing, defense, uh, the environment. Um, is there a concern that the spending just was never going to be reined in? I think that's certainly a concern in the business community. And I think we saw that concern also raised by very prominent liberals like Scott Bryson after the liberal NDP deal was first announced. So certainly there is that concern. I've heard from one or two MPs within the Liberal caucus who privately say they are also concerned by that. But clearly the government has made the political calculation that that is not their biggest priority. It's not voters' biggest priorities. And in terms of addressing cost of living, addressing inflation, they've closed the first chapter on childcare with the deal with Ontario. And now I expect them to talk much more about, about housing affordability, which is the other thing they always talk about when they're attacked by the Conservatives about cost of living challenges. Right. Let's, we we're already not talking about $13 billion in the last week to Ontario for that childcare. All right. <laughs> lots of money going around. Uh, okay. It's going to be a big week ahead. Yves Giroux, Joyce Napier, Marika Walsh. I know we're going to all have a busy week ahead. Thank you for joining us, though, on this Sunday. That is Question Period for this week. And a reminder, you can watch CTV's special coverage of the federal budget live starting at 4 p.m. Eastern on April 7th on all CTV platforms. Our chief anchor and chief news editor, uh, Lisa Laflamme, will be hosting. I'll join her, so we'll Joyce, and we'll have the whole CTV team there. Then we'll have a two-hour extended version of PowerPlay on CTV News Channel, so watch for that. In the meantime, hug your loved ones. We'll be back here in seven short days.